Hi, I'm Josh and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art and craft and travel of nature photography. It is the 29th of November 2023 and this is podcast number 85. If there is some uh, loud banging and knocking in the background, I apologise for that. There is building works going on uh, beside my house at the moment. I've been trying to find a time when it was quiet to record this podcast, but it seems that that is proving quite impossible because the builders were also working on the weekend. So there is quite a bit of noise here in the background, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I'll do my best to try and edit it down in the post, but um, no doubt at some point you're going to hear the nail guns going off. So anyway, let's come to the podcast topic, and that's going to be packing for Antarctica and what I'm going to be taking with me and why and what the plans are for that trip. Uh, I think it's worth talking about. I mentioned in a post I put up on my blog a couple of days ago that um, I had decided not to go ahead and purchase the, the Canon, the new Canon RF 10 to 20 millimeter lens. I was really on the fence with this lens um, and whether I was going to purchase it or not. But what ultimately decide, made my decision for me was I decided to go back through my Lightroom catalog and actually have a look at all those photographs I had shot with the EF 11 to 24 millimeter, a lens I owned before I switched to the mirrorless RF system. And what I found was that there were virtually no photographs that I shot wider than 14 millimeter that I actually liked very much. Uh, almost all, everything wider than 14 millimeter didn't really work, especially if there was wildlife in the frame. Uh, the distortion that you get by having wildlife so close to the lens and being so wide just isn't very aesthetically pleasing to the eye. And I found I didn't particularly like any of those photographs. I had one or two landscape images I'd shot up in Svalbard of the pack ice at 11 millimeter that were were quite nice and I quite liked, but they were really the only ones. And the rest of that time, rest of the time, that lens was not being used because if I was shooting at 16 millimeters or longer, I was using my EF 16 to 35. So I ultimately decided that the new 10 to 20 millimeter lens, appealing as it is, really isn't for me. I don't think I would use it enough. Uh, certainly not in that 10 to 14 millimeter range. Now, because the Canon now have that fantastic RF 14 to 35 millimeter, which is really my go-to wide angle lens these days, I would really only be, be, be buying 10 to 13 millimeters in this 10 to 20 lens. And there really just isn't that many times where A, I need to go that wide, or B, I like the results of going that wide. So ultimately I decided against it. Um, not a reflection at all on the optical quality of that lens because it's superb, it's MTFs are great, the MTF charts, and its performance in the field from everything I've seen and read uh, is quite phenomenal. It's just simply that I just don't find a use for that, that lens is that wide. I think this particular lens, the 10 to 20, is going to find a home mostly with architectural and interior photographers, uh, real estate photographers, photographing the inside of houses. You can never go wide enough um, in those sort of situations because they always want to show the rooms to be bigger than they really are. So a 10 to 20 is going to be fantastic for that, fantastic for architectural work or city photographers. But I think in nature, typically there's very few instances when we need to go wider than 14 millimeters. And um, if I do, you know, if I'm bobbing around in a Zodiac somewhere and um, in Antarctica or up in the Arctic and we're too close to the big iceberg and I can't fit it all in the frame, I can always stitch the image. Uh, that's always my backup plan. It's worked very well in the past. Just shoot two or three images and then stitch them together and, and crop to suit at a later date. So not 
going ahead with a 10 to 20 also means it's one more lens I don't have to carry. And that was also a bit of a consideration for me. I am, believe it or not, actually trying to slim down my kit a little bit these days. I like to travel with, uh, with less gear. I like to travel with zoom lenses just because they're so flexible, at least up to the telephoto range, up to the big telephotos. Uh, and that kind of brings me to talking about what equipment I'm going to take to Antarctica and why. I guess the first thing to see is I've actually lost track of how many times I've been to Antarctica. It's a lot. Um, I've been there for, I think it's 12 seasons now. So, and many of those seasons I've been multiple times. So, I don't remember exactly how many times it is, but it's a lot. And I've learned a lot over the years about what works and what doesn't work down there. So what am I going to take with me and why? Well, there'll be some, some of this will be pretty standard fare and there'll be no real surprises. And some of it might be a little bit interesting. So before I get into the detail of exactly that, I guess I'll just back up a step and say, I actually traded in my 17 millimeter and 24 millimeter tilt shift lenses uh, with Canon. I was just finding that I was not using them anymore. Um, the instances when I did need them, I was doing a focus stack with the software that's built into the EOS R3. It works brilliantly. I believe it's also built into the R5 as well, although I haven't used it in the R5. But I did purchase one. Actually, that's the camera I picked up uh, when I traded in the 17 and 24 millimeter tilt shift lenses, uh, just to have a, a landscape body more than anything else. And I needed a third body. So Coming to the gear, so the two R3s uh, I'm going to take with me to Antarctica. They're my workhorses until we see the R1. Um, I have no further updates on the R1 at this point, just to sort of jump around on topics a little bit because I get asked, I'm being asked a lot about the R1, but uh, it probably won't get. I think what's going to happen with the R1 is that we're going to see the development announcement in December, and then we'll see uh, an official announcement early in the new year, and then you'll see the first cameras getting in the hands of the pros in time for the pro sports shooters anyway, in time for the Olympics next year. I know Sony's got their new camera out already, but Canon typically doesn't. Uh, it's not really a monkey see, monkey do corporation. They'll do it in their own time. So anyway, until we get an R1, I'm going to be shooting my R3s, which I love. I think they're fantastic cameras. The only feature they're really missing from those cameras is pre-record. Uh, the way Sony has implemented that in their new camera, I think, is brilliant. I think I actually talked about that in my last podcast a little bit. I'm hoping we'll see that in the R1, and I'm hoping, really hope, we might see some sort of pre-record feature come to the R3 via a firmware update. That would be phenomenal. So in terms of lenses, uh, the, um, the two R3s, two, two spare batteries, I'll take the RF 14 to 35 F4. Uh, that will be my wide-angle lens for the trip. I'll take a 24 to 105 f4. That'll be my mid-range zoom for the trip. So if I'm going out on zodiacs uh, to do icebergs and iceberg cruising, those are the two lenses that I'll use on the two bodies most likely. Uh, of course, I'll have something longer in my bag, and that will be both a 70 to 200 2.8 and a 100 to 500 as well. Now the 100 to 500 has proved incredibly versatile. Uh, I used it very, very extensively in Greenland this September. Uh, photographing icebergs from the ship because it lets you get close, uh, because it's so small and lightweight and it's fast enough for that sort of photography. You don't need f2.8 when you're doing icebergs from a ship. So that lens is definitely going with me as well. But I will take a big fast prime uh, for penguins and that'll be the 400 2.8, the RF version. I'll also take a 1.4 teleconverter 
so that I can have 540 millimeters, and that'll be for photographing birds from the back of the ship as we go across the Drake Passage. So that will cover me. That's all the lenses I'm going to take with me. So it's only a fairly small kit, a 1435, a 24105, a 7200, a 100, 500, and the 400 2.8 with an extender. So that will all fit in my carry-on camera bags. I'll be using my uh, Pelican roller cases for that. I'll be taking my Swarovski binoculars. Obviously, I want to have those for bird spotting and for iceberg spotting from the deck of the ship. It's always a lot of fun to see who's going to spot the first iceberg as we get towards the Antarctic Convergence. So I like to play that game, and I'll certainly be up on the bridge looking for a um, looking for that first iceberg. There's quite a few people coming on this trip. It'll be their very first time to Antarctica. That's incredibly exciting for them. So I'm not taking a tripod with me. Uh, the primary reason is I've just found that historically I don't use it um, down in Antarctica. The only time I have used it in the past was actually to support a big heavy lens when I was shooting from the back of the ship. And the RF 400 2.8 is light. I can easily handhold that lens, so I just don't need a tripod for that. I will take a beanbag just to rest on the side of the ship. That's always nice to have. Uh, and I can just pack that inside the lens hood to protect it during during travel. So I think that's about it. I will also take a polarizing filter as well. There are times I want to remove the sheen on the water, and there are also times I want to be able to look down into the water and see the iceberg under the water. So a polarizer will go with me, but I won't take split, uh, split NDs or graduated filters at all. Uh, I just find, again, I don't really have a use for them in Antarctica. I don't plan to do any long exposure work either, hence I won't need a tripod. We are dealing with one little complication this year down in Antarctica, which is the result of too much bureaucratic red tape, uh, with too many bureaucrats having too much time on their hands, and that is to do with the avian flu spread. That is, um, well, it's a pandemic around the world, really. But they have put a, a, a rule, if you like, in place down in Antarctica that you can no longer kneel or lie down when going ashore. Now, obviously, that's quite problematic for wildlife photography. In fact, it's extremely problematic. So how do you deal with it? Well, I actually encountered this problem when I was in Antarctica last year when I was down at the Emperor Penguins. And what we did down there was we used uh, ground sheets, disposable ground sheets that we could lay on. Now, I had suggested that we do that this year as well, um, but uh, IATO, which is the body that governs uh, tourism in Antarctica, has denied that request, which means we will have to stand up while we do our photography. Now, for those of us who are using mirrorless cameras with tiltable LCD screens, that's not a deal breaker because it's very easy to sort of squat down and use the screen on the back of the camera to see what you're doing. It's not my preference. I would prefer to lay down and look through the viewfinder. That's always my preference when I'm photographing wildlife, but I can make do this way. And that's how we're going to have to manage on this trip. I have no, no idea how long this rule is going to stay in place. I actually even have no idea how they plan to enforce it, to be honest. Uh, obviously, my expedition leader and staff on board the ship will be fully briefed on this. No doubt they'll be looking for it. And of course, we need to do the right thing as well. So uh, even though there is very, very little chance, in fact, basically zero, according to the people I've spoken to who are in the know of bird flu being spread by someone laying down in the snow, this is the rule that's in place uh, and we need we need to abide by it. And then at the end of my Antarctic expedition, which actually runs December 8 to December 21st, so I'm going to have a couple of days in... Uh, Actually, I'll have one night in Buenos Aires while I wait for my flight down to Ushuaia, and then I'll have two nights in Ushuaia before we board the boat on the 8th. We'll have two days sail across the Drake Passage. Hopefully, 
all fingers and toes crossed, we'll have calm seas. And uh, we'll get opportunities to photograph the prions and the mini albatross that are going to follow the boat across the across this notorious passage. And then uh, we'll be in Antarctica itself for 10 days. We've got some phenomenal landing locations booked. La Mer Channel, Deception Island, Whalers Bay, Nico Harbour, Paradise, uh, Peterman Island, the list goes on, Cooperville Island, fantastic locations, many of which I've, all of which, in fact, I've visited multiple times and I'm looking forward very much to returning to. All of those will be absolutely incredible. Of course, I'm hoping for dramatic weather. I hope we get, uh, once we get across the Drake, that is, I'm hoping we get some very heavy Antarctic skies with good definition in the cloud, some gentle snowfall, some heavy snow, some blowing snow. All of that would be fantastic. Uh, and of course, it will be what it will be, so we will make the most of it regardless. But as it is a full charter, and we are dedicated to photography on this trip. We're all like-minded individuals. We'll be working uh, during the hours of the day that gives us the best light, and I really look forward to that as well. And then on the con- at the conclusion of that trip, on the 21st of December, I will be uh, flying back to Santiago, overnighting in Santiago, and then going to Easter Island for a scouting trip for a future workshop. So this will be my first time to Easter Island. I actually had planned to go there, with my friend Martin way back in, I think it was 2010. and uh, But I just had too much on my plate. I couldn't find the time and uh, could not get there. So this has been my first opportunity to go back. Things have changed a lot there now, I'm told. You must have a guide, a local guide, to even visit many of the historical sites now. You need to buy national parks passes. It's become very mainstream in that way. Uh, I don't know if that's going to make running a future workshop there impossible. It may do. Part of the reason I'm going there is to scout it and to find out. Um, I'm a big believer in always going to a location and getting to know it before running a workshop there. So we'll see what eventuates from this. I'm excited to go there. It's a place I've always wanted to visit to see the the statues. And uh, whether or not a future workshop results from that, I'm sure it will be very enjoyable uh, nonetheless. It's something I, um, I look forward to at the conclusion of Antarctica. It should be a really nice way to wrap up the year. It will be my last trip of the year. Um, I won't be get back in Australia until the 28th of December. And then I mean, f- sorry, then I'm flying out again on, I think it is the 1st or 2nd of January for my winter trip for Palaskat in Eastern Mongolia. So it's a very, very fast turnaround for me back to Australia, dump the bags, do some washing, change clothes, change gear. Uh, of course, they're both cold climates, but require very different clothing. So Antarctica, typically, I don't expect we'll get temperatures much below minus 5, maybe minus 10 with a bit of wind chill. Uh, Mongolia is likely to be much more around minus 20, so uh, possibly even colder. So it's a different type of cold as well. So that'll be a different packing exercise. I have I have actually shifted away for this Antarctic trip from my traditional North Face duffels. I have become quite tired in airports of looking for airport trolleys to put my duffels on so I could actually move them around. So I decided I'd go back to one of the North Face rolling duffels. I think they call it the rolling thunder. I had used them in the past. Um, I've had two of them in the past, actually. The airlines had broke both of them. Um, thankfully, they came with a lifetime warranty. So I had simply taken them to North Face and they had replaced them both times. There's a new version of the rolling thunder duffel the one I had purchased. Now, these are not inexpensive bags. They're quite expensive. I think it was around about the 500 Australian dollar mark for this this rolling duffel bag. But it is supposed to be extremely tough, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the airlines are pretty abusive with bags, but I'm hopeful that um, this one big, huge 
rolling duffel bag will be enough for me to fit all my equipment in. Um, I'm also taking a small backpack dry bag, which will pack flat inside that rolling thunder bag. And that'll be to put my camera gear in when we go ashore as well. So that's how I'm going to pack for this trip. Uh, I am going to be leaving in just under a week uh, from today. Uh, the nice thing about going from Australia to South America is it involves time travel. So I will be landing in Santiago at round about exactly the same time I took off, thanks to the time difference between Australia and Santiago. Uh, that's going to make for some jet lag, hence a couple of days to recover in Ushuaia at the bottom of Argentina before we begin the expedition. I am super excited to be returning to Antarctica. This expedition was planned a long, long time ago. And now seeing it come to fruition is fantastic. Uh, to be able to share it with like-minded people, like-minded individuals and photographers, really doesn't get any better than that. So this will probably be my last podcast before Antarctica. I will try and squeeze another one in if I get some time. I've still got the two books here I want to do reviews on. I've got uh, Bird Photographer of the Year, Volume 8, and I've got Vincent Munier's new retrospective called Munier, which is absolutely superb. Uh, I've already spent a lot of time with that book. I really am quite keen to try and squeeze a review in of it, but I want to do it justice. So if time permits, I will get that review in. Um, if you haven't ordered that book, I highly encourage you to do so. P call it a pre-review recommendation. Uh, absolutely superb. It does include many of his photographs that I had not seen before. Um, it was also it also came beautifully presented and packaged with some lovely artist cards as well. I'll talk about that in the review. Bird Photographer of the Year book 8 is here. Incidentally, if you want to enter that competition at Bird Photographer of the Year, it's also open and closing very soon. Uh, so now is the time to get your bird photographs in for that as well. Just Google it if you're looking for a link. I think that's the best way to find it. So I think that's about it for today. We'll wrap it up there. I'm Josh. It has been the 29th of November, 2023, podcast number 85. I look forward to seeing you out in the field. And if you don't hear from me before, that will be in Antarctica. Take care.